following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Today's reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he had come to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered him, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man, Who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Let the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offering. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. 
They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. Before we consider God's word together, let's pray and let's ask for his help to receive it in obedience and faith. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we have just heard your word read to us. And we know that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so as we consider your word together now, with the prophet Samuel, we say, Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. We're returning to our series in First and Second Samuel this morning. And those of you who were with us last year, you know that from January in, until the end of July, we were in First Samuel, considering that history of Samuel and Saul and David. And now, this morning, we turn to Second Samuel. So we finished First Samuel, now we're returning to Second Samuel. And as you look through the books of the Old Testament, you'll see there 1 Samuel, and then 2 Samuel, and then 1 Kings, and then 2 Kings. And sometimes we look at that and we think, okay, these are four distinct books. These are four parts to the history of the kings of Israel. But that's not true. This is one single narrative. This is one single story. And the only reason that we have 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings is a very practical reason. It's because it's a long history. It doesn't all fit on one scroll. And so it was preserved and passed on in four scrolls. And that's why we have one, two, three, four. But this is a single story. And hearing 2 Samuel chapter 1 read to us this morning, we know that because it picks up right where 1 Samuel left off. And maybe one way to think about this is in a contemporary context, it's kind of like... Um, a dramatic, a serial dramatic series on Netflix, right? So we've had season one, that was First Samuel, and now we've been waiting, and now season two has just been released, and so we're, we're listening to the first episode now of season two, but it's one continuous story. Now, if you've been waiting for the next season of, let's say, The Crown, you know, season three, we watched that recently, uh, you, you sometimes need a bit of a reminder of what's happened. And so you get a bit of a recap at the beginning of season two. And I think it's helpful for us because last time we, we considered 1 Samuel was in the summer of last year, just to have a bit of a recap to remind us where we are. So this is sort of like, you know, uh, previously in Samuel. And we'll remember that the final chapters of 1 Samuel report what happened in the final days, in the last days of Saul's life. And so in chapter 28, we read about that dark journey that Saul took at night to the medium of Endor. And this marks uh, the moment where Saul has, has fallen to the depths of despair and darkness. 
and he participates in a ritual meal with the dead there. And he has fallen, in a sense, to the depths of hell. This is a satanic ritual, meeting with the medium of Endor. And we've been tracking in 1 Samuel the descent and the fall of Saul, and here he's reached his lowest point. That's in chapter 28. And then in chapter 29, we read about David, and David himself, his life as we follow it goes up and down, and he's been in the wilderness, and he's been pursued by Saul, and there are moments of great faith and triumph, and then there are moments of weakness and moments where he's acting in his own strength and wisdom. And chapter 29 reports such a time in David's life. He hires himself out to be a bodyguard for a Philistine king. And God doesn't tell him to do this. This was not wise of David. He's acting in his own wisdom and his own strength. And as the Philistines go to battle against the Israelites, the Philistine soldiers don't trust David. And so David is released from his service to the king of the Philistines. And he returns to his home in Ziklag. And when he returns, he finds that his wives and his children and all of the wives and the children of his men have been taken captive by the Amalekites. And his village of Ziklag has been burned to the ground. And this is a very low point for David. Now we're told this happened on the third day. And the third day is a day of resurrection, the day of renewal, a day of restoration. And that's precisely what we read about David. The men are weeping. They have no strength. And they turn and they want to stone David. But David, the, the author tells us, David strengthened himself in the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. He turned back to the Lord. And now he's walking in the strength of God. He's walking in the wisdom of God. And this is a moment of David's resurrection on the third day, his restoration and his renewal. And he overtakes the Amalekites, and the Lord uh, gives back to David all of his wives, his children, his men's wives, their children, all of the possessions. It's a great day of recovery, a, a great day of resurrection, of renewal, of life. And that's where we left David. That's in chapter 30. And then the final chapter of 1 Samuel 31 reports the battle at Mount Gilboa between the Philistines and the Israelites. And there we read about the death of Saul. And so that is the end of Saul. And it's been a, a tragic story of decline and descent into darkness, into despair, and finally into death. And that's where 2 Samuel begins. And it doesn't skip a beat. We, we pick up right where we left off. And the report of the victory of the Philistines, the defeat of the Israelites, and the death of Saul comes to David. Now before we consider this first chapter of 2 Samuel, it's good for us to remember the nature of biblical history and biblical narrative. It's helpful that in the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, these books are referred to as prophecy. These are prophetic. And that's helpful because it, it tells us that the history that we're reading has a prophetic significance, a prophetic purpose. That means it's telling us something about God. It's telling us what God is doing in history. It is unfolding for us his purposes. It's showing us his covenant love and faithfulness. And we need to be looking for that and paying attention to that as we read through these books. And these are not stories that were just written to give us moral lessons. You know, tell us how to be better people. Don't be Saul. Be David. Be Jonathan. That's not the purpose of these books. Now, there is wisdom to be learned here. Yes, of course. But these are prophetic. And we are looking for what God is doing. We're paying attention to God's presence in the story. And then we are asking ourselves, how do we respond? And how is it for us in our circumstances? And how do we know God's, the same God's covenant love and faithfulness? And what does obedience and faith look like for us? 
Now we turn to this first chapter of 2 Samuel. And the account reports David's response to this report, this news of the defeat of Israel, the death of Jonathan, and the death of Saul. Now the report that Saul has been killed in battle, we would think would bring relief to David. You know, finally, these years of persecution are over. And Saul is a wicked man, and finally God has brought him to justice. And we would think David would respond with relief, or even rejoice at what's happened. But he doesn't. He responds with profound grief and lament. And let's remember, at this point in the life of David, he's just been revived by the Lord. He's just been resurrected on the third day. And the narrative even tells us it's the third day again. And that's a, that alerts us to what happened recently in David's own life. He, he has been revived. And his response is a godly response. He's a man after God's own heart. So his response of grief and lament, this is a godly response. And this shows that he's a man after God's own heart. And this week in the news, and, and many of the articles in the newspapers and online are reporting the response of Canadians to the tragedy of, of that plane crash. 57 Canadians died in Iran. And the, the newspapers are reporting stories of Canadians' response to tragedy, Canadians' response to death. And so God in his kindness has given us an appropriate text to consider because this text shows us how we respond to tragedy. And it shows us two things. First, that we recognize tragedy. The Amalekite in this story did not recognize tragedy. He thought David's going to be rejoicing at this news. He was wrong. He didn't recognize tragedy. David did. And this, this text will call on us to recognize rightly what tragedy looks like. And for that, we need integrity of heart. We need the fear of God. The Amalekite didn't have that. And then the second thing that we learn here is how we respond to tragedy. And David shows us how we respond to tragedy. Not only with profound grief, but with lament. And notice he writes a lament, and he has it taught to the people of Judah. And so he teaches it to us. And we learn lament from David in this text. So first of all, recognizing tragedy. And the first half of this chapter reports what happened as this Amalekite came to David. Now, he comes with Saul's crown. He comes with Saul, uh, Saul's armlet. These are signs of, of uh, th these are royal insignia is the technical term for that, but they belong to Saul. They're symbols of his rule and reign, his kingship. He's got them. And he comes with a story of what happened on the battlefield. His story isn't true. We know it's not true because we just read what happened in chapter 31. And we read that the archers came in, and we read that Saul took his own life after his armor-bearer refused to take his life. So what the Amalekite is telling here, his report, is a lie. It's not true. That's not what happened. And if we're ever in doubt, you know, should we trust the biblical narrator or should we trust the characters in the narrative? We trust the biblical narrator. We don't trust the characters if there's a contradiction. We don't trust Amalekites. That's for sure. So he's lying. Now, why is he lying? Well, he's making assumptions. You know, he, he's, been, he's, he's a scavenger. He scavenged uh, as, as a scavenger, found uh, the, the crown and the armlet, and he thought, hey, this is a great opportunity for me. I'm going to bring these back to David. David's, David's going to be very happy to know of Saul's death. 
and he'll receive this news well. I'll, I'll receive a commendation. I'll be in David's debt. You know, he'll be very glad that, that I did this. You know, I, and I mercifully took Saul's life. So, you know, he, 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 he puts a positive spin on what happened. And maybe he thinks, hey, I'll be given a prominent position in this new kingdom. Because he knows the lay of the land. He knows what's going on with Saul. He knows what's going on with David. And that's why he lies. He gives a false report. So he lacks integrity. He's a liar. But not only that, he's a fraud. He's a faker. Because he recognizes Israel's just been defeated in battle. And he recognizes that this is a national tragedy. So he comes with his, to- his clothes, they're torn. He puts dust on his head, dirt on his head. You know, he's pretending to mourn. He's pretending to be sorrowful. So he's trying to play the part. But he's, he's faking. He has no integrity in his own heart. He's motivated by selfish ambition, his own selfish interests. And David sees right through it. David sees it. And so does God. God's not fooled by this. And we're reminded here of what Jesus himself says, and he says this to the churches, he says this to us in Revelation chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus says, I am he who searches heart and mind. That's who Jesus is. I am he who searches heart and mind, and I will give to each of you according to your works. The Lord knows. He's not fooled by this man's lie. He's not fooled by this man's pretense. And it's a reminder to us that the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts are not hidden from God. He's the one who searches our hearts. He searches our minds, and he will hold us to account. And we may be tempted, even on a Sunday morning and in our fellowship with one another, to keep up appearances. You know, we kind of perform. You know, we, 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 we try to put a pious face on things. And we know that we want to say the right things, and we want to know, and, and we, we try to show, hey, everything's okay, everything's all right. But the Lord searches the intentions of our heart. He searches the intentions of our minds. He knows what's really going on. There's a call for us to have integrity in our hearts, to be honest, to be honest about where we are. It's also a call, too, that... We need to be careful about the testimony that we give, that we're faithful and honest in our testimony, what we report about things. And this isn't just an account in the Old Testament. You know, this sounds like a very Old Testament account to people who think, well, there's the Old Testament, then there's the New Testament. This kind of thing happens in the Old Testament. You know, people are getting executed and people die, but not in the New Testament. Well, you don't have to read very far into the early history of the church to know that this is exactly what happens in the New Testament. Remember Acts chapter 5. At the time, there were people in the church in Jerusalem who would sell property, and they would bring the proceeds of the sale to that property and give it to the disciples, the apostles. And they would use that to look after the needs of people in the life of the church. And there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they sold some of their property. And then they gave the proceeds of that sale to the church. But not all of it. They kept some of it for themselves. And when Peter asked them, is this the amount you received? They said yes. They lied about it. And Peter wasn't fooled. He knew what happened. And the Holy Spirit wasn't fooled. And they both were struck dead for lying to the church, for bearing false testimony. And so this is not just an Old Testament reality. This is a New Testament reality. This is a reality in the life of the church. So there's a call here to integrity of heart. 
And it's a reminder to us that we're called to integrity of hearts. And every Sunday morning, we come to the Lord's table. We examine ourselves. And yes, the Lord is the one who searches our hearts and minds. But, but we, especially with the help of the Holy Spirit, we, we search our own hearts and minds. And we come to the table recognizing and acknowledging our faults, our sins. Now, integrity of heart doesn't mean, hey, we're perfect. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. I examined my own heart, and there's some pretty gross sin there. I recognize that. But it's acknowledging that. It's not faking. It's not pretending. It's not falsely professing about where we are. So we come every Sunday morning honest about where we're at, knowing we need the grace of Christ, knowing we need the forgiveness of sins. Now, the reason that the Amalekite didn't have the integrity of heart, the reason he was a liar and a faker, is because he didn't have the fear of God. And notice that David cross-examines this young man. He cross-examines the Amalekite. So the Amalekite's already given his testimony. He's already given his witness. But David calls him back to the stand. He cross-examines him. And notice what he asks. This is verse 13. Where do you come from? And the man answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Now David asks this question because he wants to discern how culpable, how accountable this man is. Does he realize what he's done? So where, where have you come from? He says, I'm the son of a sojourner. In other words, I'm a resident alien. I'm a permanent resident. You could think of it that way. In Israel. So he knows. He knows who Saul is. He knows that Saul is the Lord's anointed. He has no excuse. This wasn't an accident. He wasn't acting out of ignorance. He knew better. And that's what David discerns. And so David then responds in verse 14. How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? You've been living among God's people. How is it you didn't have the fear of God in you? How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand against the Lord's anointed? Now, David's response is to have the man executed. And many people, many commentators will read this. Many readers, as they, they hear this report, are shocked by it. And they think, oh, David's overreacted here. You know, this is a harsh response. But it's not. This is precisely what God's law requires. Let me just read for you Genesis uh, chapter 9. And this is important that it comes from Genesis because this is a universal law for all nations and all times. Genesis 9, 5 to 6. This is what God says to Noah right after he's come out of the ark. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For every beast I will require it, and from man, from this, fe from this fellow man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And then here's the law: Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in His own image. That's the law. That's God's righteous requirement. So the penalty for first-degree murder is death. The death penalty applies. David knows the law of God. He applies the law of God in this situation. Now, it's a complicated case because we know the man didn't actually murder Saul. 
He gave false testimony about that. But here again, we have the law of God. And the law of God is very clear about false testimony. If you give false testimony in a case, then the penalty for the crime about which you give false testimony will be applied to you. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 and 19. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. You shall purge the evil from your midst. Now David says the man is condemned. Why? By his own testimony. He's given false testimony about first-degree murder, and he receives the penalty for first-degree murder. So what David has done here isn't an overreaction. He's not being overly harsh. This is what God's law requires. It is a righteous and judge response. Now here, we can look at our contemporary context, and there's a very clear parallel. Because what did the man do? He assisted Saul in committing suicide. Now hear that. He assisted Saul in committing suicide. And this text is very clear about what God thinks about that, about assisted suicide. And we need to hear that. And remember that David recognizes the tragedy of this situation. He sees it. The Amalekite doesn't see it. David has integrity of God, uh, integrity of heart. He has the fear of God. And he knows what to do in this situation. And we live in a country where assisted suicide is legal. And our country has said what God has condemned very clearly, we say is permitted. We allow. But let's not be confused about this. Physician-assisted suicide is not a, a moral dilemma. It's not an ethical dilemma. It's not a gray area. It couldn't be more black and white. And David knows it, and we know it, because we have the Word of God. And many Canadians don't recognize it. They don't recognize the tragedy of euthanasia in our land. But let's be clear about it. As a church, you know, from this pulpit, we declare to our government, and we declare to all the spiritual principalities and powers in this land that we stand with David. We stand with the word of God. And a physician-assisted suicide is what Amalekites do. This is an Amalekite practice. Who are the Amalekites in Scripture? They are those who, who kill the vulnerable, the weak. We see that in the book of Numbers. We see that in the book of Exodus. This is their practice. And God in Deuteronomy says to Moses, future generations must, I will judge the Amalekites in future generations. Why? Because they prey on the vulnerable and the weak. They kill the vulnerable and the weak. It's not a coincidence that it's the Amalekites who come to David's village when the men are away, right? The vulnerable, the weak, and take them. And so we see the Amalekites today in our land. And we condemn them because of what God's word clearly says. Now, to recognize tragedy, we need integrity of heart. We need the fear of God in our heart. David has that. He's a man after God's own heart. 
he sees the significance of what go, uh, is, is what has just happened. Not just in the defeat of Israel, not just in the death of Jonathan, but even in the death of Saul. And he grieves, and he grieves deeply because of it. And he shows us how we respond to tragedy with grief, godly grief, and with lament. Now, I was, I was you know, imagining this whole scene in my mind's eye. And I'm picturing, you know, the report of, of the death of Saul coming to David. And David tearing his clothes and David fasting and David responding with this profound grief at the news of the death of Saul. And right with David is Abiathar, the priest. He's the only remaining priest from the village of Nob, which was a priestly village. Saul had all of the priests in that village. Abiathar's own family murdered. And Abiathar is standing right there with David, and David is responding with grief to the death of Saul. Now how can he respond with grief at the death of Saul? Saul is a wicked man. Saul murdered innocent priests. In his final days, he, was, he, he entered into the fellowship of demons with the medium of Endor, participated in satanic rituals. How can David grieve at the death of Saul? Well, let's consider that. How is it that David can grieve at the death of Saul? Well, he begins by lamenting, if you look ahead to his lament, lamenting the, the, the fall of the mighty, the fall from glory. Oh, how, how the mighty have fallen. And he doesn't just mean on the battlefield. He means, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Oh, how the Lord's anointed has, has fallen from glory, from grace. David's grief is not just a response to the death of Saul on the battlefield. David is responding in profound grief to the descent of Saul, to, to Saul's fall from grace. He was the Lord's anointed. He was filled with the Spirit. He's lamenting the, the entire life, second half of Saul's life. You know, that descent into despair, that descent into darkness. You know, the sin and the un unrepentance that overwhelms Saul. That's what David is lamenting here. That's the source of his grief. And there's another reason that David is grieving the death of Saul. Because he's a man after God's own heart, and God grieved the death of Saul. God was grieving the death of Saul. God grieved what happened to Saul. Let's remember what God himself asks in Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Listen to this question that God asks his people. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Does God have any pleasure, any delight in the death of the wicked? No. Now, I'm not going to read through this entire passage, but I commend to you this week in your own reading, read Isaiah 15 and 16. Because this is a prophetic announcement of God's judgment on Moab, on the Moabites. And there's a very vivid picture of the destruction of the Moabites and the suffering of the Moabites at the hand of God in those chapters. It's a strong word of judgment against the Moabites. But even as God is announcing his judgment, he's also saying this. This is Isaiah 15, verse 5. My heart cries out for Moab. A few verses later, I drench you with my tears, Moab. And after announcing this judgment and their destruction, he says, my inner parts moan like a liar for Moab. 
God grieves the judgment of the wicked. He does not delight in the judgment of the wicked. David grieved the death of Saul. He grieved God's judgment on Saul. And let's remember Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Let the Lord see it, unless the Lord sees it and is displeased. So David's a man after God's own heart. He grieves the death of Saul because God grieves the death of Saul. Now, Pastor Mike, in your prayer, you, you mentioned the fall of prominent Christian leaders. And if we're honest, when we read about those reports, you know, the fall of prominent Christian leaders, you know, so-and-so had a big megachurch, and there was this, and there was that, and as we follow their ministry, you know, we're a bit critical of their theology, I'm not sure about this, I'm not sure about that, we're, we, we're suspicious of their motives, we think, ah, they're really kind of going after this celebrity identity, and, you know, kind of promoting their own ministry and their own name, and then we see them fall, and we think, yeah, that's right, pride, right, pride precedes the fall. That's what's going on there. And if we're honest in our own hearts, you know, sometimes we think, oh, whew, good, I disagreed with that person. And now they've fallen from glory. Sometimes we even take secret delight in that. And here what God's word tells us is there's only one response to the fall of prominent Christian leaders or the fall of Christian denominations from glory, from grace, and that is grief. So you look at the United Church in Canada. You look at the Anglican Church in Canada. What's our response to that? Godly grief. We lament it. We grieve it. And there's all kinds of prominent, usually in the States, pastors and leaders. When we hear about that, we respond with godly grief. We lament it. Now David responds to this not just by tearing his clothes and giving those very uh, visible and visceral expressions of his grief, but he also writes a lament. And that's what we have in, in the second part of this text. Look at verses 17 and 18. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. David's response wasn't just a, a profound feeling of grief in his heart, but he wrote a lament. And he wanted that lament preserved, and he wanted that lament taught to the people of Judah. Because they needed to learn how to respond in grief, how to, how to respond with lament. And we need to learn how to respond with lament. And this is what lament does. This is what a lamentation does for us. When, when we read it in Scripture, whether it's a psalm of lament or the book of Lamentations, for example, or when we ourselves write a lament, what lament does is it articulates our grief. It composes our grief. It gives structure and coherence to our sorrow. It gives meaning and significance to our grief and to what's happened. And the reason for this is because grief isn't just a momentary experience. Grief lingers. Grief can overwhelm us. We need to articulate it in lament. I was reading this week the diary of Andrew Bonar. He was a Scottish pastor in the 19th century. And only after a few years of marriage, his wife tragically died after giving birth to their sixth child. It happened on October 14, 1864. And I read through his diaries and I, I, I looked for the entries 
and what he wrote on the anniversary of his wife's death, just to see what he was saying. So a year after his wife's death, on October 14, 1865, he writes this, Not one day has passed in the last year. Not one day has passed since this time last year, during which my beloved Isabella has not been distinctly before me. A year later, and he is still, he says, my wife has been on my heart distinctly every day for the last year. And you look at the, the subsequent entries over the next few years, and he says the same thing. Not a day has passed that I haven't mourned her loss. Several years later, he says this, October 14th, 1871. He writes, the anniversary of that memorable night on which the Lord took away the desire of my eyes with a stroke. Going over the scenes of this time seven years ago, many solemn thoughts arose. And then he writes on the 10-year anniversary of his wife's death, a day of solemn memories, how difficult to learn the lessons of affliction well. This is 10 years later, but the grief is still with him. He's still suffering, he's still mourning. And then he writes this. This is 1887. So this is many, many years later. He writes on the anniversary of his wife's death, the anniversary of my beloved Isabella's sudden departure to be with Christ. And then he adds this. And now my son's son, his grandson, a child of three days old has been taken from them. And he writes this, and this is lament. Broken cisterns, broken cisterns all around. But then he writes, but the fountain remains full. Now that's lament. He needs to articulate his grief. He needs to compose it. And the gift of lament, and this is a, God, this is a grace, this is God-given lament. David gave it to the people of Israel. You need to learn this. And many, many of the Psalms, in fact, most of the Psalms are lament Psalms. They, give our, they, they articulate the cries of our heart. They compose our grief, our sorrow, our suffering. But they also point us to Christ. They point us to God. And as you read through the diary entries of, of Andrew Bonar, again he'll say, but his presence consoles me. Or he'll cry out, Holy Spirit, come breathe upon me. Come be with me. And so he'll say, broken cisterns, broken cisterns all around, but the fountain is full. Now David knows this. He knows that we need lament. He knows that we need to learn lament. This is how we respond to our grief. And if you look at the lament that David writes for the people to learn, for us to learn, I want us to notice three things. Three things that he teaches us about lament. So first, at the beginning of his lament, in those opening verses, his prayer, his cry, is that the enemies of Israel don't rejoice over the death of Saul. So look at verse 20. Tell it not to Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. He's saying this is a tragedy. Saul's fall from grace is a tragedy. He was the Lord's anointed. He, he was filled with the Spirit. He had every grace. He was leading the people well, and then he fell from grace. And he said, don't let the enemies of Israel hear about this. Don't let it be spread abroad, lest they rejoice and exult. And this is the response of unbelievers to the fall of godly men and women. 
rejoicing, exaltation. May it not be our response to that. And David says, don't spread it abroad. May it not be known. And there's a warning to us here because there's lots of websites and blogs that do precisely that. They publish and spread abroad the fall and the disgraces of Christians. That's wrong. And it's wrong for you to read up on that stuff and get all excited about it. And, oh, this happened, this happened. No, David's, David's response of lament is, don't let it be spread abroad. Don't let it be published. This is not something for us. This is not the news that we are called to declare. And then secondly, he draws our attention, even to Saul, even for Saul, he draws our attention to what is praiseworthy and commendable. And this is what lament does. It forces us to look for what is praiseworthy, what is commendable. Because there was a time in Saul's life when there were things that were praiseworthy and commendable. And here David celebrates his valor, his courage in war. He fought valiantly for the people of Israel. He didn't hold his sword back from the blood of the slain or the, or the fat of the mighty. He fought valiantly for us. There was a time when he did that. We remember that. And then he says in verse 24, You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, you cl- who, clothed you with luxur- who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. There was a time when he ruled well, and we were blessed because of it. And he remembers that. So lament forces us to look at what is, as Paul says in Philippians 4.8, what is true, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy. So lament teaches us that. And then finally, lament articulates lost love gives articulation, expression to lost love. What beautiful words, what David says about Jonathan. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now David here is mourning the loss of his friendship, mourning the loss of his relationship, the love that he had with Jonathan. Now, let's not misread what David is saying here. And it's often misread. This is what David is articulating, and this is what he's mourning. He and Jonathan had the same confidence, the same faith in the God of Israel. And they knew the steadfast love of Israel. They knew the covenant love of the God of Israel. They shared that together. They knew that. And there were times where they reminded one another of that. There was a time where David was in despair and Jonathan came out to him and strengthened his hand in the Lord. Reminded him of God's faithfulness. Reminded him of God's love. And the love that David and Jonathan had for one another was the personal expression of the love that they'd received and that they knew from God. And David, David knew that and experienced that uniquely with Jonathan. He says, I haven't experienced that with anyone else, but with Jonathan I did. Jonathan was a minister of God's love to me, and I don't have that in my life now. And he, he laments that. He mourns that. And so in a week when many in our country and when the newspapers are giving voice to our grief, giving voice to lament, we have a text which teaches us lament. Shows us how we lament. 
And we live in a time and we live in a country where people don't know how to lament. They don't know how to respond. They often don't recognize what should cause us grief. And so on the one hand, prophetically, we say, euthanasia ought to cause you grief. That ought to be a, that ought to be a lament for our nation. But on the other hand, when people are mourning the loss of life, we come alongside and we say, yes, you're grieving. And the Lord knows that grief. The Lord teaches us how we respond to that grief. This is what lament looks like. And we say, yes, cisterns, broken cisterns all around. But the fountain is full. And that's what people in Canada need to hear this week. The fountain is full. Jesus, on the last day of the great feast, stood up in the temple and said, whoever is thirsty, come to me and I will give you drink. And he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And remember what David himself said in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then he says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. So yes, broken cisterns all around, but the fountain is full. And we come to the Lord's table now. He prepares a table for us. He anoints our head with oil. Our cup overflows. That's what we're coming to do right now. We recognize the broken cisterns of our own life, but the fountain is full. So let's come to the fountain now. Let's come to our good shepherd who will feed us, who will nourish us, who will fill us. And we will be able to say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of our life. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.